Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. The date is Thursday, June 19th, 2014. 10 p.m. back in the east, 7 p.m. out west, 9 p.m. here in Texas. And let me tell you something, I could not be more thrilled to be back with you tonight and back with a killer conversation. You know, you often hear me say here that it's not nice to play favorites, and it's surely not, because for the most part, I only invite people here whose work I admire and love tremendously. But let me tell you, Suppose by chance that you were to ask me which of the 90-some interviews I've conducted here in this forum has been my favorite, and suppose by chance that I were under extreme duress when you asked me said question, I believe it is entirely possible that I would choose this interview, the one I'm about to present to you. As I speak to you currently, many of us soap fans are getting ready to enjoy this weekend's Daytime Emmy Awards, which are still quite the exciting shindig, wholly in spite of the fact that they are not even being televised this year, uh, the fact of which is quite bittersweet because I can remember a time, and not so very long ago, when the Emmys were a massive television event that all the networks clamored uh, to present on their airwaves. You know, I was just looking at some ratings numbers earlier today while writing this intro, and I was fascinated by the raw data. Last year's ceremony, broadcast on a little-watched cable network, brought, uh, garnered a little under 2 million viewers in the aggregate across multiple airings. Twenty years ago, in 1994, the Emmy telecast attracted nearly 19 million viewers when they were broadcast on ABC. Those 19 million viewers, of which I was most assuredly one, uh, witnessed what I'll contend forever is the most justified, most deserving Emmy win in my memory, that of the ravishing and extraordinary Hillary Bailey Smith, who walked away with the statuette that year for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series for her staggeringly detailed, profoundly brilliant work on One Life to Live a season earlier. You know, I started Brandon's Buzz five and a half years ago, and I started it with a wish list of about 25 names of people, actors, writers, musicians, authors, entertainers of all stripes, and, uh, you know, to whom I wanted to reach out and invite here for a conversation about their work. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that, you know, more than half a decade and nearly 100 episodes later, I have been able to check a whole bunch of names from Linda Dano to Pam Long to Gordon Thompson, uh, the great Brenda Russell, the glorious Nia Peoples, off of that very list. 
believe it or not, the name that I kicked off that list with in December of 2008 when I was planning the creation of this show was Hillary's, was that of my all-time favorite actress, the curator and protector of my all-time favorite soap character, one like to live whip-smart Nora Hannon Gannon Buchanan, whom Smith brought to brilliant life beginning in 1992 and running for over two decades, give or take a coma and a cancellation or two. Uh, of course, you know, old school soap fans also remember Hillary for her earlier runs as Margot Hughes on As the World Turns and as Kit McCormick on The Doctors. You know, Nora's big splash into the fabric of Landview, Pennsylvania, was the storyline that won Hillary that aforementioned Emmy. And, you know, I think it's fair to say it's the storyline for which most of us longtime One Life fans still remember Smith most fondly. And that was the brutal gang rape of Landview University co-ed Marty Saybrook, and more specifically, Nora's decision to defend in court the four young men Marty accused of committing said crime. That storyline, which ran throughout the summer of 1993, and which sent the show's ratings exploding into the ionosphere, won a boatload of daytime Emmys for pretty much everyone involved in its creation and execution, including head writer Michael Malone and his crackerjack writing team, actor Susan Haskell, who played Marty, actor Roger Howarth, who portrayed the ringleader of the rapist, Todd, and of course our brilliant Hillary, who earned the Outstanding Lead Actress Emmy on the strength of her work her profoundly extraordinary work during the storyline's primary climax. You know, one of the true masterstrokes within the storytelling of that yarn was that we in the audience were in on the truth from the start. We knew who was guilty, we knew who was not guilty, and so in addition to rooting for the rapists to get what was coming to them and, you know, to see Marty attain a bit of justice for herself after the horrific crime she had just survived, we were also actively rooting for the characters involved in this storyline to become as smart and as informed as we were in the audience. And because we had already fallen madly in love with Nora Hannon-Gannon via her utterly charming step-by-step romance with our longtime favorite hero, Bo Buchanan, uh, we were specifically waiting with bated breath for Nora, the rapist defense attorney, to get clued into what was really going on with her clients. And we were dying to see what would happen with this woman who had constructed her entire life around the concept that nothing in the whole world was more paramount than justice and truth, what this woman would do when she figured out that her clients had been straight up and straight-faced, lying to her the entire time. And Hillary, with those expressive, electrifying eyes of hers, rose to the challenge with a performance that, from where I stand, has never been touched, much less equaled, in this genre, and truth be told, in pretty much any other. When she discovered the truth of what had actually happened the night of Marty's rape, Nora, having exhausted all of her legal options, having been demolished by the fact that she had allowed herself to be taken in by these amateur sociopaths, and having found herself lodged between the job she was obliged to complete for her clients as an officer of the court, and her devotion to the truth and to doing the right thing as a lifelong servant of justice made the agonizing decision to throw the case during her final summation and face head-on the very real possibility that she would be disbarred for her actions. You know, if you were watching One Life some 20 years ago, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you weren't, let me just say, in a show that became renowned for the incendiary tour de force performances of its featured actresses, think Judith Light on the witness stand, Think Robin Strasser's live wire vulnerability. Think Erica Slezak's seven distinct personalities living within one tortured psyche. This performance by this woman in this storyline was one for the ages, people. A magical, magnificent moment in time.
you know, last summer I hit upon the idea that I wanted to use this platform to mark the 20th anniversary of that storyline and to pay tribute to the bold, brilliant work that everybody involved with One Life uh, turned in during the long, hot summer of 1993. I reached out to probably 15 or 20 people who were involved with the show during that time frame, actors, writers, directors, producers, network execs. You know, I cast a pretty broad net here with this project uh, with the notion that even though all the stories about that story had most likely already been told in the two decades that had passed, they hadn't necessarily been told all in the same place. And I kind of had a dream of creating some sort of oral history, or aural history as it were, as an anniversary-related tip of my hat to a golden time in the extraordinary run of what I will always consider the greatest soap opera in the history of American television. So I reached out to all these people. You know, I know you're all just dying for me to shut the hell up and play the damn interview already, and I swear I'm almost done. But anyway, I reached out to all these people, and as usually happens with things like this, I got a variety of responses. Some people ignored my queries entirely. A handful respectfully declined to participate. You know, I got a, a, a fabulous man by the name of David Smilo, who actually wrote the original script for the aforementioned summation episode, wrote me one of the greatest emails I've ever received in my life. It was so great that I couldn't even summon the emotion to be upset by the fact that he turned me down. Uh, one person whose name I will not reveal at this time agreed to speak with me, but had no real desire to do a radio-type interview, so I'm hoping to be able to convince this person to allow me to you know, post some, some of his or her thoughts on my blog at a not-too-distant future date. And then there's Miss Hillary, my divine, my dynamite Hillary B. Smith, who is just everything that there ever was and everything there ever will. She is everything in the world, all wrapped up in one sinfully delicious human package. And because my original plan, some sort of roundtable-esque approach to celebrate a brilliant soap storyline, didn't quite work out as I intended, you are now instead about to hear The Hillary B. Smith Show, starring Hillary B. Smith. And you know what? Hell yes, that's okay by me. Hell yes. You know, I chatted with Hillary last July. Actually, it was before the news that, that uh, you know, the One Life reboot piloted by Prospect Park was being shelved, uh, you know, whatever the hell that means. And, uh, you know, I was armed with a boatload of questions, not just about the rape storyline, but also about the infamous Cabana incident, uh, the murder trial with Dorian, all the rest of her incredible life and career, the whole shebang. I mean, I was just, I was armed with pages and pages of questions. And the woman gamely tackled every last one of my inquiries over the course of a nearly two-hour gab fest. Uh, my initial plan was to edit this conversation down to an hour or so, uh, but I just, I, I could hardly stand to cut anything major out of our chat. And honey, it was all major. So you're about to hear basically the whole damn shebang. Go grab a cold beverage and get comfortable. You've heard the old maxim that one should, should uh, never meet their idols, much less try to chat them up, because the reality will never live up to the fantasy you've built up in your mind. I prove that silliness wrong here on a regular basis, believe me, and never more so than with this woman. You know, Hillary is so bright and so witty and so sharp and quick. There were moments when I literally felt as though I was hanging to this conversation by the crust of the skin of my fingernails as we hurtled from topic to topic. But I think it's fairly obvious how massively I enjoyed speaking with her, and I strongly suspect you're going to enjoy listening to her equally as much. Twenty years ago this month, 
this gloriously brilliant woman walked away with the most prestigious honor her industry offers. And, you know, I can think of no better way to commemorate Emmy Week than by sharing with you the riveting story about how a feisty, fun, ferociously brilliant attorney convinced Hillary to dye her hair red and come on back to daytime television full-time, and how the role of Nora Gannon altered forever the trajectory of Hillary's entire career. Far away. Uh, talk to me about how Nora Gannon came into your life. Gosh, I was doing a lot of prime time at that point, and I was working a lot, and my kids were little. And I left as a world turner to be able to spend more time with my kids. And then as it turned out, I just I was very blessed. I worked a lot, and most of the time I was, you know, on a plane to California. So yeah. I dropped them off at school and say, I'll see you this afternoon. And when they came home, I, I wasn't there. I wasn't, you And know, you'd in show a up plane. three weeks later again, yeah? You know, two weeks later, whatever, three <laughs> weeks later, you know. So and at one point, my son literally went up to the television when I was on, and he banged on the TV, and he said, give me my mommy back. So, I mean, because he could see me on TV. And so... <laughs> And I've heard you say that when, they were crawling into your suitcase and trying to, you know, sneak a ride, hitch a ride with you to California. And... Exactly. They would, they would play in my suitcase just because they felt that they could come with me. So I had shot Driving Miss Daisy and another piece with Arlene Sorkin that she co-wrote called Dirty Laundry. And those were the last two pilots that I did. And, and it really looked like Driving Miss Daisy was going to go. It was just gorgeous. But we shot it the night of the riot. And that kind of put a kibosh on it. CBS just went, mm, can't handle it. And then I did Dirty Laundry, and that was Arlene Sorkin, and it was a CBS Productions, uh, Richard Berge and Friend Drescher, and that looked like it was going to go. And then the last minute, they decided not to go with that. And my husband finally turned to me and said, look, <laughs> you know, can you, can we, it, it's my turn now. I'd like to start my own business. What do you say you not hop out to California would you mind going back on a soap? And I was like, no. I loved soaps. I loved it. And it was the consistency and the sense of family. And I'd be home. And a great so character to act every single day. Yeah, if you had a great character. So I called my agents and I said, you know, we're really thinking uh, in terms of my family now and I'd like to go on a soap. And they went, okay, well, you know, we'll see what's out there. The next thing I know, one like was called and said, yeah, will you come? And I was in Maine at the time. So will you come down and audition? So I went in and I read. Susie Beto Horgan was in the room, and she and I knew each other from As the World Turns, so that was a little old poem week. And this woman, Linda Gottlieb, who I'd never, ever met before. And did you know anything about One Life at all? Had you, had you seen the show? Did you know oh, anything? I was a huge fan. Are you kidding me? I could hardly leave my house between wow. 12 and 4 every day because, Very you know, cool. there was... Yeah, well, there was Ryan's Hope, which I had auditioned for of course, before sure. and hadn't gotten. And One Life to Live was the first thing I auditioned for right out of college. I screen tested for Becky Lee Abbott. That is great. And I didn't I have get never it. heard that story. Oh, that is hilarious. I was sitting there playing guitar and singing, and Judith White stopped and listened to me, and she goes, oh, that's <laughs> wonderful, and went into the rehearsal hall. And I was like, wow, Judith White said my singing was wonderful. Oh, my God. Mackerel. Wow. I was a huge fan, huge. All I ever wanted to do was do a soap and live in New York. That's all <laughs> I ever wanted to do. So when I ultimately, you know, and I had done Broadway, and then I did regional, and then I did primetime, and all I wanted to do was daytime. So after doing primetime, I got a chance to do the doctors. I jumped at it. You know, you did I it exactly met. backwards because everybody starts in and then backwards. moves on to. I did everything backwards. But all I really <laughs> wanted to do was live in New York City and be in a soap opera because I loved soaps, and I wanted the steady gig. And I wanted to be able to do my theater at night. So anyway, one life to live. Uh, I went down, I screen tested, and then, they asked me in the beginning, do you have any questions? And I said, no, but I betcha. 
after I do this audition, you'll be thinking, she really should have asked some questions. <laughs> and I did the audition, and there was sort of dead silence in the room, and I went, okay, well, I think I'm, I think I'm done with this show. <laughs> and she said, um, uh, you read like a Lauren Bacall. I said, yeah, what does say Lauren Bacall is right here at the top. She said, try Catherine Hepburn. I was like, okay then. And we did it one more time, and I added a little more softness to her and, you know, a little more cat and mouse, and I left, and I figured, okay, well, that's that. And then I got the call for the screen test, and I screen tested with Bob Woods, and there were two other girls. It was a dark-haired girl, a redhead, and then me. And at the time, I was sort of light brown hair with blonde streaks in it. Anybody whose name we would know or or just two? No, not that that I can remember I mean, I'm sure they're probably well-known. I just can't remember them. <laughs> and I'm out there, and I'm doing the screen test. And, uh, oh, gosh, you know, names are really bad with me, and I love this man. He was the, We called him the maestro. He was the director, David. And he was an old soap director, and he'd done a lot of He'd done directing. He'd been blackballed during the whole communist era, and he just was a really terrific guy. We call him You're not talking maestro. about Pressman, are you, David Pressman? Yes, I am, David Pressman. Thank you. So David directed my screen test, all the screen tests, and uh, we did it once, and then he walked out, and he said, I want you to look at me, and I looked at him, and he goes, can you see the camera lens? I said, yes, and he said, can you see the light on on that camera lens? I said, yes. He goes, great. Now, just do me a favor and nod your head up and down. I said, okay, I'm nodding my head up and down, and he said, Great, thank you. And he turned around to walk back in, and I said, what, 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 what? And he came back, and he said, they asked me to give you a note that I don't agree with, so we're just going to do it again, and they'll think I gave you the note, and you'll be fabulous. <laughs> I think he went back in the control room, and I went, oh, boy. Fantastic. We did, we did the scene again, and I got called up to Linda's office, and she said, um, I don't really get you. I think she said something like that. She goes, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, how would you maybe? How would you feel about being a redhead? I said, well, if you think we're all the same, you have a redhead down there. Why do you just fire her? And she said, that's not the point. How would you feel about being a redhead? I said, I, I have no problem being a redhead. I left there and I went, I think one life to live is safe from me. I think I'm not going to get this job. And it was literally five days later that I got the call saying, you got the job. How great. And then I just kind of started and, you know, I came on slowly. You know, it's so funny to me how, how much and how profoundly I ended up loving Nora because I was so predisposed to just detest you because you were essentially brought in to replace my previous favorite actress, Grace Phillips, who I thought was absolutely extraordinary as Sarah. And, you know, it's so funny because they had recast Sarah the year before, and I hated that. Because Jensen right. Buchanan was Sarah to a whole crowd of us fans, and you know how dare they replace her with some no-name newcomer, and then Grace just comes in and knocks it out of the park, and and uh, you know we all fall madly in love with her, and then uh, you know they dumped her and drafted you, and I'm thinking Jesus, this is absolutely outrageous. How dare they just kill off the love of Bo's life just like that? And then of course you come in and just you know take off like a bottle rocket and steal all of our hearts, and and uh, you know it never fails to amuse me how fickle we soap fans can be with our affections and. And with our vehemence and outrage, just, you know, so long as the story is actually compelling and strong and entertaining. I have to say, you know, it does come down to chemistry and working well with someone who has a good sense of story, and that's Bob Woods. When I came on, they originally brought me on as Hank Gannon's ex-wife, 
I was going to butt heads with Bo, but not necessarily be his love interest. They had me screen test with him because they wanted to have something happen possibly. They had no idea what was going to happen, and neither wow. did we. They brought me on as the woman that killed Sarah. Yeah. That was the original idea was that I was going to be the one to have run you her off the road. You were driving the car that ran them off the road, yeah. I was driving the car, exactly, that ran her off the road. And I had one of my seizures that, you know, I played when I first came on. And Bob Woods, and I told him that. I said, no, they told me that I'm the hit-and-run driver. And he went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not going to fly. <laughs> and he went to Linda and he said, let me just tell you something. Bo would never, ever forgive this woman. No matter how much he loved her, he would never be able to look at her the same way if he knows that she was responsible for Sarah's death. She goes, oh, yes, but we're going to tell this love story and you'll be so in love with it. He goes, I'm telling you right now, it will never happen. I'll never be able to play it. And you're setting her up for failure because the fans loved Paradise. So she listened to him. And I had... Smart as Linda Gottlieb was, she listened. And I think that's what made her even smarter in my mind. She listened. So they changed the story. And they had Kevin O'Rourke come in and be the truck driver that we traced oh down. And, and because we were looking for this together, they played the beat where I thought I'd done it. They played that beat where I had to tell him. They kept the story all the way through it. But then they made him go, no, it doesn't feel right. I could never fall in love with a woman who would have taken paradise away from me. And he goes and continues the investigation. So it really was very heroic. And I love the fact that they just didn't abort a storyline. They followed it through and found a way out in the end. And tweaked it, yeah. And tweaked it. Well, that was the whole, just so you know, that was the whole thing with the rape. The whole storyline with the rape was, I was brought in to be the lawyer in this. I mean, they knew back then kind of what they wanted to do. They wanted to do this rape. When I came on, they had Marty and Todd sleeping together and then Todd walking out and abandoning her. Sure. And they basically wanted to put Gannon versus Gannon in the courtroom. That was sort of the focus, the Gannon versus Gannon in the courtroom. Wow. So they told me, I mean, I'm very big on, I came from the Doug Marlin school. You know, he used to come to me and tell me the whole thrust for the year. He had wow. long story. Sure. Which I think is a lost art. Uh, everyone wants to be so reactive to stories and fans and stuff, and my feeling is write a good story and they'll come, Absolutely. and they'll take no parts question. of it, but they'll sit through it and they'll love it. Write a good long-term story and stick with it. You know, that's why it was so brilliant that Linda brought in a novelist to do that job. Yeah, and Josh Griffith to be his partner, who had been writing soap, so he understood... How to outline it, how to break it down. So, I mean, it was a really brilliant team. So, anyway, she pulled me into her office and said, I just want to tell you that you're going to be defending the rapist. And I went, ooh, that's interesting. And she said, and you're going to get them off. And I went, what? What? (laughs) She said, yeah, you're going to get them off. And I went, oh, really? (laughs) She said, oh, yes. I said, okay, I have an issue with that. She goes, what do you mean? I said, you write your story the way you want to. You want them to get off. I completely understand that. That's fine. But as far as my character goes, can I have a moment before the verdict comes in where I find out that they did it so that that win isn't something I can be smug about? Wow. And she went, yes. So then that gave me license. 
to really go after everybody on the stand. And I said, you've just given me permission to be a shark in the courtroom. Wow. And, and you she were. said, go for it. So that, she gave me permission to do that. So in the courtroom, that's what I got to do. I didn't know they were going to have me figure it out before the final summations, and I loved that. You know, it seemed to me like you were always kind of playing that you didn't, you weren't completely taken in by Todd, Todd especially, but, you know, Zach and Powell also. You know, you, you kind of took them on because they were Kevin's friends, and, and you know, Kevin was uh, Bo's family. So, But it always kind of seemed like you were, you were playing, even in the back of your eyes, you were playing that you weren't completely taken in by these three charming boys. Well, no, I, as a favor, because I had issues with this, as a favor, I took on Kevin as a client. And the next thing I know, I have the other three where I really wanted just to try Kevin, and then if I could get him off, I would probably take on the other three because once I could get Kevin off, but there just was something about Roger Howard and the way he played Todd. Of course. He was so arrogant, and he was so smarmy. You always felt like there was an oil sheen on you after he'd been in the room. And he played this really fabulous 40 bully, you know, where he'd go up and kiss Powell and blow kisses at him. And it was just, it was really locker room bully shit. And it was fabulous. You know, he was frat boy number two. And Roger just made that character. And not only that, but you saw him with his father. So you understood if he was an abused kid, you understood that bully aspect and why he lashed out on weaker, weaker people. You know, the scene that everybody remembers, or that I remember anyway, is, is you having Todd on the stand and Todd looking at Susan Haskell in the, in the uh, gallery and saying, I forgive you, Marty. And just the, uh, the look of sheer evil on his face was just priceless. There was also a scene that I really, really loved. It was Rachel came to me with a girl out of Todd's past who said he had raped her. And I'm like, wow. And it hits me that, oh, my God, he could have done this. And they leave, and Bo comes home, and I tell him, I think they did this. And Bo says, well, you have to drop the case. And I said, I, Absolutely. no, no, no. And they, played, that, they played the brilliant history of Sarah having been raped, and so he was outraged right. that you were even considering continuing to defend exactly. these people. Exactly. And he leaves in a huff and goes off, and I call Todd and have him come over to my house. And he basically, without admitting it, tells Admit me, it. not only did he do that one, but he did this one, and there was nothing I could do about it because I had already gotten him off. The headlines were all reading Innocent Boys, you know? You bet. And I remember him leaving and me sliding down the door going, oh, my God. <laughs> and then Bo came back, and he said, you know, apologize. And I said, you're right. I don't know what I'm going to do. So then that was the whole thing of trying to get the different defendants to admit on the stand that they did it. It was just well thought out, really, really well thought out. And I, too, loved that scene in the bathroom with Rachel. I don't know if you could see it or not. I played that she had thrown up and uh, that she was coming out after having thrown up and that the towel I used to wipe my face, I started folding it. When I was doing that speech, I just kept folding it into yep. tiny little bits until there was nothing left but this tiny little square. God, Ellen DeFia was just such a fabulous person to work with. And she was always so there. You always looked at her in the gallery. Susan Haskell and I used to search her out in the gallery because she would be right there and look at you and help you focus and help you get to where you needed to go. With those great expressive eyes. Oh, God. Beautiful eyes. Just beautiful doe eyes. 
so it was really it was really interesting. Linda came to me the first day on the when I got there. I didn't have a dressing room. I was in Tanya Walker's dressing room, and I'm sitting there, kind of looking around. Oh, the Tanya had a lot of pictures of herself all over the wall with different people, and I was just looking around. And Nathan Perdue came in and said, "Let's talk about backstory. Let's try and come up with some history for each other." So we did. We kind of, you know, we got a little history from Michael, but then the two of us talked about our marriage, and you know, we came up with this sort of backstory. And I remember Linda knocking on the door, and she walked in the door, and she said, I just wanted to welcome you. And I said, oh, good, thank you. And she said, and I want to tell you, you can do whatever you want to do with this part. Wow. I said, wow, thank you. She goes, no, I I really want you to do it, but there's one thing I want you to remember. We strong women (laughs) are always going to be perceived as strong and hard-edged. So you do not have to play strong and hard-edged. You need to play soft so that when the softness goes away, the edges are exposed. But if you play against what you have naturally, you'll come out great. I went, okay. Not only did she give me insight into Nora, she gave me insight into her. And I completely appreciated that. And it was also a very, I am a hard-edged woman, but I have a soft side. I just sometimes get too tired to show it. (laughs) And I so appreciated that moment. It was just a brief moment. So I got along with Linda terrifically. You know, the... the crime of rape, and rape as a story point, has been around in soap opera since the beginning of time. And, you know, there have been times when it was handled very badly, and, you know, there were times... I mean, Search for Tomorrow did a brilliant date rape story in the 80s with Marsha McCabe's character, and, you know, so there have been times in soap history when the subject of rape has been handled with great sensitivity and great attention to detail. But this storyline about the gang rape of a drunk college girl, this was the real deal. I mean, this was tough stuff, and it was made all the more so because these guys... They were the boy-next-door type, but, you know, they weren't nice, and we knew it. And, you know, the victim was hardly a saint either. I mean, we had watched Marty parade around town for a full year and a half acting like an out-of-control hellion. And, you know, that, right. only, that only enhanced the brutality of the crime, I think. I mean, did you, did you as an actress ever have a moment in your mind of, Jesus, we're really going here? I mean, is the, are we sure this is what the audience is dying to see at home? They shot the rape on a Saturday. They wanted to, just to do that whole frat party and the rape. And I felt that they showed a lot that my prudish sense would not necessarily have shown. But I thought that the way they played it through the fish tank, Jill Mitwell shot that as well. I thought it was, in hindsight, brilliant because it's not a pretty thing and you need to make sure, you know, we have a young audience, we have a college audience, and you need to make sure that kids understand when you drink too much and you lose control, bad things can happen. And not just to bad people and not just from bad people. So it was really important that reputation, I mean, I thought it was, that was the whole thing for me. Soap operas were, we were the morality. We carried ethics and morality to the forefront and kind of served them up on a platter to show the audience situations where the bad guys are the bad guys and they should never be honored or heroic. And I think that was my problem with where soaps went in the end was bad guys got to be more fun to write than the good sure. guys. And the bad guys became the, the heroes and the good guys became the fools. Exactly. And I yeah. think that's where you lost your good sense of storytelling. It just was easier to write the bad guys. So in hindsight, I thought it was – I loved the way it was shot. I loved the fact that they did it. And I love the fact that we used it and went back to it and played that history out. It was a very, very important moment. I really am grateful to them that they let me 
play that I knew before the verdict came in. And I am eternally grateful that they let me know before the summation. And they told me that they were going to do that, that I was going to find out before the summation. So telling me that left me to think about what the summation was going to be like and what I wanted it to be like and what I would do as Nora in that situation and how I would play it and where I would go with it. But I was very disappointed in the summation. When I opened it up, I couldn't wait to read the summation. Sure. It was a paragraph. It was wow. literally a, maybe a 10-line paragraph. I was so devastated. I went, what? Well, everyone would be on my case that I tossed this case. I have to work it. I have to undo all the damage. I can't undo it in a paragraph. So I went to Linda and I said, I, I, this isn't going to service what you've set up. You've spent six weeks on this trial. I mean, that was unheard of, to spend six weeks in a courtroom on a TV show. And isn't it true that because it was so popular, it was actually extended? It was originally going to be just a couple of weeks? It was only going to be about two or three weeks, and they kept writing it, and then they slowed it down even more by throwing in this other storyline about the kids getting caught in a well. And, yeah, sure, yes. And they stretched it out that way, and, you know, anything. The circuit ratings just kept going up and up and up. So when I got, I said, you can't, this has to be the climax. This is the climax. This is where it all comes together. This is the vindication. This is the moment. I said, you know, I'm going to cause a mistrial. I can't cause a mistrial like that. (laughs) I mean, now I'm causing a mistrial because I'm just too lazy. I said, this has got to be torture. Yes. So Linda said, all right, well, what do you want to say? And I said, I want, I mean, justice is blind. I want them to close their eyes. I want them to think. I want them to take them back. I want to, she's like, oh, my God, go to Michael. So I went to Michael. I said, Michael, you wrote Times Witness. I've read your donations. They're brilliant. Can you write this? Will you write this? Do you mind? I just, I really would love to say your words. So he and Josh sat me down and said, well, what is it that you want to do? And I talked about, I mean, I wanted to do the blind justice and make them cover their eyes. I wanted to take them through it. I, I said, I want to make them feel the scales on either side. Is she a whore or is she a victim? Is she, you know, are they heroes or are they enemies? I mean, so he wrote this beautiful eight-page monologue for me, and it was gorgeous. There were some beats that were redundant that we cut out. You know, we were just still honing it, and uh, Lynn and I were still talking it through when I walked on the floor. Wow. And we shot it. We did two takes of it. And it sounds like no rehearsal time. I mean, if you were still tweaking it right up until that moment, it sounds like you didn't have much rehearsal time to get this kind of in your system and, and, uh, you know, kind of get it worked out in your mind, how you were going to choreograph the whole physical motion of you walking around. Well, we had a dry block in the morning, so I knew where I had to hit at what beat. And then we did a camera block so that I could take that speech and put it around to where I needed to be. And then we kind of went from there. We had a jury there. It was fabulous to do it with. You know, as money got tight, you lost the jury. You ended up with one head or two that you could kind of duck behind, but usually no jury at all. So it was really, you know, and they had the full courtroom. They hired all these extras to play reporters for that last shot when the door is open and they all go rushing out to the phone bank that was back there. It was just really well done. It was really, really, really well done. And it was, it just was special. I mean, knew it was special. Everybody knew it was special. Susan Haskell, right there, you know, the tears, and Susan Batten, and, you know, Ellen Basia, right there, Woodsy, right there, Erica. And Nathan, I mean, Nathan looking at you like he couldn't believe what was coming out of your mouth. You know, he was watching me, yes, watching me, and 
Roger Howard looking at me going, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? And the kids were great. And we had our wonderful Fitzwater. It just all kind of worked. I don't know. It just was a moment in time that captured everything. And then that just blends so beautifully right into the Wait Until Dark storyline. Sure. It was just a wonderful climax that got to a plateau where you could start the next climax. And, you know, I take my hat off to Michael and Josh and Linda. They really just... Well, Linda knows how to put together a great team. Then let them do their thing, Linda. Let them do their thing. And she kind of let everyone do their thing. You know, it, it sounds to me like, though, they didn't really appreciate or quite understand uh, what a huge moment the submission was going to end up being. And somehow you did. I'm wondering how you knew what they couldn't quite see. Well, you know, I'm an actress, so everything's got to be about me. <laughs> so when they told me that story, I put it in terms of, well, this is my moment. It's my courtroom. It's going to be my summation. Sure. It's got to be about me. It's got to be about my torture, my structure, my struggle. And so they let it be about me. And I, you know, <laughs> that's basically what it came down to. I think I made it about me, and they let me. And I'm so glad they did. Wow. They trusted me, and I trusted them. You know, you don't get a lot of that anymore because time became a huge factor and money became a huge factor, and they took the trust away. There was very little trust towards the end because it was just a matter of, no, you have to do it this way. We don't have time to talk about it. you just got to do it. And they were reactive to the fans because we now have such interaction between the fans out there. They hear about a storyline that's not working, and they immediately want to change it and Sometimes you just got to go with it and, you know, anyway. <laughs> you know, when people talk about One Life and the great moments, you know, they talk about Judith Light breaking down on the stand. They talk about Slazak and her tour de force of, you know, being six or seven different people. They talk about Andrea Evans going over the falls. They talk about you. They talk about Nora and that summation and the mistrial. And, you know, it must, not that you do this for accolades and, you know, awards and stuff, but it must be, a great thrill to know that you contributed a moment in time to the extraordinary run of a true American classic. Thank you for saying that, but I really, truly believe that the moment in time that they refer to that includes the summation is the rape. It had to have started at the rape because the performances, the writing, Susan Haskell, Roger Howarth, Ellen Bethia, Susan Batten, all those people, Zach, and they, just all those people committing to the story all the way through. And I think that was the most memorable thing for me and the thing that I loved the most. Starting with the race through to the summation, that was also the beginning of the Bo and Nora love story. Of course. It was a build. It was a moment in time where I think the cast became incredibly cohesive. It was a beautiful, intense umbrella story. And so I don't think it's just the summation and me. I think it was totally and utterly one life to live, the rape story, which started with the rape and ended with the summation. And, you know, I'd love to think that, it, oh, yes, just me. But it's not. It was really, truly Susan Haskell, Roger Howarth, yes, me, yes, Ellen Bethia, yes, Bob Woods, yes, Erica Slazak, and Nathan Perdee. Nathan Perdee 
I mean, that's what made the whole trial work with us, Gannon versus Gannon and the playoff we had with each other, all of that tension, all of that moment. What I loved most about that whole storyline was how close we all were. We became this undeniable, tightly woven fabric of a cast, and it just made us so cohesive. Because we were never the darling of the network. We were already sort of slung between the tiara and the favorite, you know? We used to call ourselves the ugly red-headed stepchild that's been sent out to foster care. We were so left on our own most of the time, and that's when we did our... And so we just stuck together like a band of thieves. We were this big, fat, dysfunctional family, and that's what I loved about being on that cast. I, I mean, I loved being on As the World Turns and The Doctors. We had a really tight cast, and I had really, really good friends on As the World Turns and The Doctors that I still stay in touch with and love to this day. But nothing compared to that cohesiveness and that I couldn't wait to get up in the morning and go to work. I couldn't wait. I could hardly sleep at night for the excitement of what was going to take place the next day and who I was going to get to see and my friends there, including crew, staff. I mean, everybody knew on the camera crew and the sound crew, everybody knew what they were a part of. And what was so interesting was, as I said, my husband walked in between takes and he looked at me and actually was after the summation and he looked at me we had another scene where she said in my chambers, he thought I was going to throw up. He thought I was really sick as a dog because I wow. looked like hell, as you can see on the yeah. video. Yes, you and did. We Talk all, about committing to your craft. I think they gave me the Emmy out of pity. Wow, you make yourself ugly. Good for you. No, 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 but no. We all went together that night. After we shot the, that final summation, that was it. We wrapped for the day and we went to the 25th anniversary party at the Plaza Hotel that Linda got laid through. So it really was sort of this punctuation mark. And now we're all going to go off and celebrate 25 years together. You know, as I said at the top, Hillary's mind is so viciously quick that there were moments when our conversation took a sudden turn and we ended up on a completely different track from where we had started. Such was the case when Hillary brought up the dreaded cabana debacle which occurred on One Life in the fall of 1998 and which stands almost universally amongst fans of the show as a black mark in the show's history. Uh, it occurs to me that newer fans of the show will have no idea what we're even talking about here because most of the details of the storyline were swept completely under the rug in One Life's later years, so universally reviled were they. Uh, so those of you who were watching 15 years ago, just feel free to tune me out for a second while I get everybody else up to speed as quickly as possible. In the uh, spring of 1998, Nora's then-husband, Bo, was accused of murdering Nora's kooky legal assistant, Georgie Phillips, after Georgie diabolically made it appear that she and Bo were having an affair. She was, in actual fact, sleeping with Bo's son, Drew, at the time, but I digress. Uh, around that same time, Nora's first love, dashing legal eagle Sam Rappaport, played with great charm by our good buddy, Kale Brown, who gave this program another of its most memorable episodes uh, several years ago, turned up in Landview to help his friend Todd Manning, uh, yeah, there's that name again, out of his latest legal jam, and it was clear almost immediately that Sam and Nora still had a great deal of palpable, atomically charged chemistry between them, even after all the years they had been out of each other's lives. The Georgie Phillips thing blew over, and Bo was exonerated of all charges, of course. Uh, it actually turned out that Nora's daughter Rachel was the who in this nasty whodunit, but cracks had clearly begun to form in the formerly rock-solid Bo-Nora union, and a few months later it was all blown all to hell. 
Uh, Nora had gotten baby rabies the year before and decided that she really wanted to have another child. So she and Bo had been actively trying to conceive, and they had both undergone a thorough battery of fertility tests. But unbeknownst to them, Sam's ex-wife, Lindsay, the great Catherine Hickland, uh, uh, who was so bitterly envious of Sam and Nora's rekindled friendship, found herself with the opportunity to screw with Bo and Nora's lives just for the hell of it when she chose to alter Bo's tests to make it look like he was sterile. Of course, Lindsay had no clue at the time what kind of shitstorm she was setting in motion, but a few weeks later, after Bo's police officer son, Drew, was killed in the line of duty, Bo went berserk and ended up sailing out to sea on his boat and running headlong into a raging thunderstorm, not really caring if he lived or died. Nora had already received the altered test results and was devastated that she and Bo would apparently never be able to conceive a child. But when Nora and Bo's family finally managed to make radio contact with Bo on his boat, Nora, desperate for something that would impel her husband to come home and face his extreme grief, lied and said that she was already pregnant so that Bo would have something to live for. Bo made it home safely, of course, and was instantly excited at the thought of having a second chance at fatherhood with this new life that he and his wife had created. But, of course, there was one tiny problem. Nora now had to actually produce a baby and pronto. In desperation, she found herself at the country club one evening, pouring out her heart to, guess who, Sam. Now, their exchange wasn't at all the tawdry, cheap thing that it was later made out to be by livid fans posting on online bulletin and message boards. The breakdown in the, in the script were actually exceedingly well-written, and it, you know it's not on YouTube that I could find, so I actually dug the VHS tape out of my collection and rewatched the episode. And everybody's motivations were made pretty crystal clear. But you know, Sam, silently hungry for a chance to be intimate again for however fleeting a moment, with the one who got away from him, finally convinced an extremely reticent Nora to let him help her conceive a child for her and Beau. And the image we were left with was Sam leading Nora by the hand into one of the cabanas at the country club, and then the light through the window and under the door jam dimming. Uh, that child, of course, grew up to be Matthew, and a later writing regime, many years later, would uh, you know, rewrite history and make Bo his father after all. But the damage of what Hillary still calls the cabana debacle had already been done. Fans, critics, and Hillary alike were all outraged that Nora, a woman whose signature was always that she was the most principled woman, at times the only principled woman in soaps, a woman who made truth and integrity the cornerstone of the architecture of her life, that Nora's integrity was being trashed for yet another twist on the standard, uh, you know, who's the daddy soap trope. My good buddy Connie Heyman railed against this plot twist for months on end as Marlena Delacroix in her weekly magazine column. Hillary herself, even at the time, admitted the entire storyline was a total fiasco, and having had 15 years of, of uh, hindsight and reflection to work with while talking to me, she really cut loose and let it fly. It's long been my contention that 93 was the greatest year in the history of that show. I mean, it, it, you know, between the rape trial, uh, Robin Strasser's magnificent comeback, Max and Luna, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Bo and Nora, Karen Witter and, and Chris Cousins, and, you know, that whole thing, and, and, you know, just all of it kind of working together in concert. It was a, just a magnificent, a, a, a true pinnacle in the in the extraordinary run of that show. I mean, they had some great years, but I think 93 was the absolute finest. Well, we loved it. And it was about romance. It was very romantic. It was, uh, you know, we, it, stories were told. I mean, Bo and Nora dated. He dated. And the audience went on the dates with us. So you bet. We, they we were followed falling them in, in love real with time. Us. Yeah. We fell in love with each other while the audience was falling in love with us. And it was, it just, it was real time, and it meant something. And then we moved in together, and, you know, it was just, 
it really meant something. It meant something. And when they broke us up the way they broke us up, it was so absurd, which was honestly just mind-boggling because I also think Jill Schreiner herself happens to be one of the smartest people I've ever worked for. <laughs> and I just didn't understand why she would ever let that happen in that stupid way. Just terrible. There. <laughs> I used to refer to that as the cabana debacle. You know, I, I was going to ask you later if if uh, if the the mere mention of the word cabana still sends a chill down uh, your spine. It makes me sick to my stomach. I fought that storyline. I fought it tooth and I went to the head of ABC, said, "You are never going to make this work. How are you ever going to get me into that cabana? I have no idea." And I even gave them an alternative. I said, "Have me be artificially inseminated with Asa. That way, at least I'm carrying a Buchanan." And you're not violating um, your marriage vows. Exactly. You know, it's so funny. I so, had Kel Brown in here a few years ago, and, you know, I'm a big fan of his and always have been. And, and uh, you know, I treaded very carefully when we got to the one life portion of our conversation because I sensed that even with so much time having elapsed, I mean, it was 2009, I think, and, and so, you know, it, it had been many years. But, you know, I, I sensed that it was still something of a sore subject for him. And, and you know, I made mention of the Bose Nora Sam mess, and I called it precisely a mess because – you know, it was in so many of our eyes. I mean, it was a big story that handled very, very badly. And, uh, you know, he kind of snapped at me a little over calling it a mess. Not in a mean way, but, you know, he certainly bristled at the word. And, and, you know, I guess his contention was that it was the best story you guys had been given to do in forever and that it gave all of you in that storyline a lot of meaty material to sink your teeth into. Yes, I agree with that. But he was brought on by Chill, who had worked with him on Another World. And she brought him on in a brilliant way, you know, that he was a love of my past and I was the one that got away and we were having troubles in our marriage and it was a thought of infidelity that I turned, you know, turned to him and Sam brought Nora back to Bo and said, here, I am delivering her back to you. I am giving her back to you. I'm putting the two of you back together. There, I've leveled the playing field. Now it's a fair match, and I'm not giving up. And I thought that was brilliant. But that cabana? <laughs> what are you thinking? That's all I What are you thinking? <laughs> and that was that. And, you know, to be fair, when Jill came on the show, the show was such a mess. By the, I mean, the, the canvas was such a mess by that time. And, you know. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing she did, didn't she do? Yeah, it was the Georgie storyline. She, yeah, yes. she mm-hmm. brought that in. And then he came in through the Georgie storyline, but Georgie, oh my God, she did a beautiful job. I mean, that was another moment in time where it was building up and Woodsy did some great stuff. It was great. And And then the whole thing with Sam Ball and losing Drew and yeah. So it all kind of worked until the cabana. And then it was like, for God's sake. (laughs) But you know, I mean, given how it all worked out in the end, I mean, you, you guys finally reconciled at long last and, you know, Matthew turned out to be both child after all. I mean, you know, uh, tell me. Yeah, that was a Gary Tomlin fix. He just said, okay, enough of this. We're fixing this. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, did it all end up the way it was supposed to in the end? I mean, did did uh, uh, did the character of Nora permanently lose something valuable in those years? Or, did, I mean, did it all work yes. out ultimately? Yes, I think the character of Nora lost her integrity. She lost her right to be righteous. Because everything she was about was justice. And her actions were insane. <laughs> they were insane. There was nothing sane about that. So I tried to play her nuts. 
You did see that. I tried to play her like she was freaking out of her mind. <laughs> That's the only way that I could justify it. Oh, she's nutty. She's off in St. Anne's somewhere. I don't know who this person is, but Nora's nutty. You know, it's it's uh, it's funny to me, getting back to the rape trial for a minute, there's an object lesson to me in the massive success of that storyline because most of the main players in that whole trial, I mean, you and Hank and Marty, Andrew Carpenter, uh, Rachel Todd, I mean, you know, most of the main players had all been relative newcomers to the show. I mean, yes, Vicky and Clint and the Buchanans were anchored to the story through Kevin and Bo through you and so on, but, you know, the main players were all what we now call newbies, which... You know, the Internet has, has now taught us all soap fans to believe is a bad word, as though new characters are never supposed to be introduced. And, and to me, there's a great lesson for all soap makers here. And, you know, that is that if your canvas is properly integrated, the fans will accept and, you know, in the ideal world, love what you give them to digest. Yes, but properly integrated is the phrase that counts. You can't just bring on, I mean, Claire Labine, wonderful writer, lovely person. I just have such great respect for her. I was a Ryan Soap fan from way back. And no I thought I loved what she did on General Hospital. With what the, she did on GH AD. is going to stand forever. Yeah, I just, I really, and she came on One Life to Live. I was so excited because I always wanted to work for Claire LeBond. What she did was she brought on a whole other cast and kind of wrote that story that she wanted to write. And a lot of us were sort of sitting out twiddling our thumbs going, uh, I mean, I had turned to Maxine and said, listen, if you've got nothing for me to do, I can leave. I can go someplace else. i got other work that I can do. But this seems ridiculous for me in my prime to be sitting here not working. And that's when Claire wrote me menopause. I had perimenopause and I was talking to a dog. <laughs> I had monologues to a dog. <laughs> and Roger Howard was talking to a parrot. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it was that sort of what we did, and it didn't work. I think the one character that was beautifully integrated was... Uh, Mel Hayes. Mel, yeah. I thought that was a lovely storyline. I thought that really, really worked. But, again, Liz Rome came along with it, and it was like, I don't know, whale watching. It was like, what is going on here? <laughs> so it's called proper integration, and over a period of time, I mean, Nathan had been on six months before they brought me on, and Rachel... And I came on because I was trying to get her to go back to Northwestern with me. So it kind of worked that way. I, it, it, it's a, I don't think writing a soap is easy, and I don't think today managing one is easy. I really think that you need to do seasons. Sort of what we're doing now is I think you need to do arcs and then take a breather and then come back with a fresh palette because the way they want to respond to the audience, they can't when they're writing continuously. You know, there is a hell of a dame that that I know you know well. Her name is Linda Dano. Oh, you know, my she's, good friend, Linda. She's been a great friend of this program over the years, and, and she was in here a few years ago, and we were talking about the night she won her Emmy and, you know, the intense alcoholism storyline that they gave her to act for a couple of years, and, and uh, uh, suddenly your name came up in the course of that conversation, and I want to play you just a quick little snippet of what she said. I submitted that for the next year. I was nominated again, and I said at the time, you must have heard me say it, I said, I believe this year I was better than last. <laughs> and I didn't win, of course. <laughs> Hillary Smith won. Yeah. And she said to me at a party we went to, and I said, so, you know, did you pick your reel yet? She said, well, it's really hard because, you know, I was blind this year, and then I was raped, and then I had the rape of the, the, as a lawyer, and then I, you know, lost my left foot. And, I mean, what, she went through this litany of things, and I went, you know what, I'm just going to go over here and get it. 
vodka. You don't need to worry about me, Hillary. And, and when she won, she said, if any one of these actresses that I'm nominated with had this kind of a year and this kind of storyline, I wouldn't be standing here. You bet. I mean, you know, we're all so respectful of each other because we all know how hard it is to put that kind of scene on tape with Hardly any real rehearsal. Not really. You got to be quick. You got to be, you know, on your game. I remember that party too. I remember that party, and she walked up to me. It was one of the first times I'd met her, and she said that to me. And I said, "Well, you know, I had the brain tumor, and then I had the rape trial." And she just looked at me, and she went, "Oh, for God's sake, where I need a drink." Oh my God. <laughs> it was so funny, and she's right. I did say that in my speech. I said, yes, you did. "If." Any of these women had been afforded the opportunity that ABC and One Life to Live gave me, this would be a very crowded, a very crowded microphone. microphone. Yep. I just believe that with all my heart. Those were wonderful. Kathleen Widows, Fanola, um Fiona Hutchinson. Fiona, Fiona Hutchinson. Yeah. I was saying Fanola. No, that's huge. She wasn't there. Fiona Hutchinson. <laughs> yeah. You know, Linda Dano, Julia Barr. Yes. No one's face was more surprised than mine. And when they said my name, I remember looking down and going, okay, I heard my name. Did anyone else hear my name? I'm not getting up there unless someone else has heard my name. And then I heard Erica say, oh, Hillary. And I was like, oh, it is my name. You know, some tiny part of you had to know going in there that you were going to win, right? No, Gary Tomlin looked at me and he said, oh, okay. I don't know. I, I think uh, Fiona's got it. I said, really? He goes, yeah, wow. you know, she had some really good stuff. And I was like, oh. And I trusted Gary. I just really did. So, you know, knock him over with a feather, too. My <laughs> agents thought it was a strong tape, but, you know, it's a soap, and they didn't really give it as much as Hetty. They, they just went, wow, you had some stuff. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> Let me tell you a little Linda Dano story that I get to tell on her now. Please, by all means. That was the first time I'd ever met Linda Dano was at that party where she came up to me, and I was so honored to meet her. The first time I ever saw Linda Dano I was, oh, God, straight out of college, and she was on One Life to Live, and I just, oh, my God, she was the beautiful Ray Cummings. I mean, ha, ha, ha. I walk into an audition for Maybelline Mascara, and you sigh in, and I turn around, and I sat down, and I look next to me, and there is Linda Dano sitting there, and I swear to God, she's sitting right next to me, so I have a profile of her. And her eyelashes are halfway across the room. I mean, literally, when I walked into the room, I had to say, excuse me, pardon me, could you close your eyes so I can get past your eyelashes? Holy cow. And I'm looking at her, and I'm like, are you effing kidding me? And I thought of myself, I have no eyelashes. I looked back at her, and I got up, and I walked out. There was absolutely no reason for me to stay when they had that to audition with. <laughs> I got up, and I walked out. I... I'm done here. Never mind. I've passed. You know, it's this. so it's so funny. She is a she's a gorgeous woman now, but but uh, you know, back then there just recently a few weeks ago there was a rerun of Charlie's Angels on that she guest starred on, probably seventy nine eighty somewhere in there. And I tell you what, she was. I mean, she's beautiful now, but she was staggeringly beautiful then. Stunning. I mean, cheekbones. I mean, literally the room. If you could just. Could you just turn your head? Your cheekbone is kind of in my way. Thank you. And your eyelashes don't back them so high. You're causing a gale force wind through this place. I mean, she was to die for. She still lives to die for. I just I kept looking at her going, you remind me of Ava Gabor. She said, wow. what does that mean? <laughs> I said, I worked with Ava Gabor. I played her daughter. And I spent all day staring at her. And at one point she looked at me and she goes, Daddy, what are you looking at? <laughs> 
I said, I'm looking at your bone structure and just loving the view. Eva Gabor was absolutely the most exquisitely made-looking woman I'd ever seen. And Linda Diana was the same thing. Bone structure <laughs> to die for. I take out my shadow and my shading and try to give myself bigger cheekbones and maybe a jawline and, you know. Cleavage I got. Cleavage I got. But everything else... Sorry. You know, the, uh, that Emmy year, uh, the buzz that year was all about you. I mean, the industry, the press, the critics, they were all raving about you. And plus, Lucci wasn't in the running, so you didn't have to deal with any of that nonsense. And then you get there that night, and it ends up being a monsoon sweep for one life. I mean, Susan wins, and then Roger wins, and then Michael wins. I mean, you know, I have a hard time believing that some part of your brain wasn't braced to hear your name called that night. I was thrilled. I've never been nominated. I never thought of Emmys. I just, I, I, I did when I was signing out the World Terms because I had some really great stuff, but the doctor submitted me for an Emmy, but I'd only been on six months, but I had some stuff on it. They loved it. We were submitting you for the Emmy. I was like, oh, how exciting. <laughs> I had no idea what that meant, the process. And I remember being, you know, at One Life and, you know, we're all talking about the Emmys and I was like, okay, whatever, you know, I don't know. I don't know anything about anything. And I, was on the whole phone. I think I was talking to my husband, and oh, I know what it was. I was talking. About, I I thought maybe I was pregnant, but I wasn't. <laughs> and so his mother said, "Congratulations!" And I was like turning, going, "What? What do you mean?" And they said, uh, "You're nominated for an Emmy." I just stared at her. Wow. Oh, you're out of your mind. An Emmy? What? She said, "Yes, the lead actress." I was like, "You're kidding me." I've never been nominated before. In all the years Holy that I've been man. doing anything, I've never been nominated before. And Woozy was nominated, and Susan, and Roger, and Michael, and I mean, everyone was nominated. It was really great. It was such a nice pat on that. And I have to tell you, that meant so much to me. Of course. Because my peers nominated me, and I, that just tickled me to no end. I just was so excited by that. And yeah, I thought I had a really good shot of winning, but you know what? I always thought I had a good shot of being nominated. I never was, so, and I never win anything. I would never win a door prize. I think I did win one door prize in my life. But I never won anything. I never win contests. I never win the lottery. I never win anything. But let me tell you, that was so exciting. You know, I really hope you allowed yourself a moment to really enjoy the view from that stage. I remember it. And all leading up to it, I knew the Emmys were on my birthday. And we did some promos. And I was like, it's my birthday. You have to watch, you know. And I, that's what the big joke was. It was my birthday because I figured something good's got to come out of this night. Let's just celebrate yep. my birthday. Is it nice that you all could be here tonight for my birthday? I mean, that's kind of. So I mean, it, when I said it was the best birthday present I ever had, I was like, "Wow, dreams really do come true. They wow. really do." Wow. How fantastic. Yeah, it was really fantastic. It was really, really wonderful. But like I said, it was right that everyone should win because it was a team effort. And the only reason, Woodsy, I don't know what story he picked. I know that. His wife and he picked up the thing. I, I just wish that he'd won, too, because he was so integral. We had such good stuff. Not just with that, but with the brain tumor and with all the other stuff that was going on that year. Yeah, he had great stuff with that. And, and also the death of Sarah, you know, when he starts to fall in love with me and then feel guilty because of Sarah. Sure. It was really good stuff. We don't need to believe her this, but the following year, Michael Malone wrote you another courtroom showcase as Nora kind of sort of got hoodwinked into defending Dorian for the years ago murder of Victor Lord, and that puts you in close daily proximity with the peerless Robin Strasser, who was your dressing roommate at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and we were written up as hottest couple. <laughs> Just so you know, we were hottest couple. 
I had a blast. She and I, not only were we dressing roommates, but I lived in New Jersey. We had so much dialogue. You know, I had a 10-page opening monologue. <laughs> Ten pages. Because I did it to myself with a summation and doing the... They used yep. to write me opening and closing arguments, eight, yep. ten pages. <laughs> and during the rape trial, I had 60 to 80 pages of dialogue every night. And it wasn't like yeah. I was asking all the questions and they were just answering. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, it was, I loved it. I loved it. I thrived on it because it was cerebral, and I am a very technical cerebral actor. Of course. So I like that stuff. You know, it was so funny. That was a very serious and intense storyline as well, but there were so many little moments and opportunities for uh, n- not stick per se, but just lighthearted comedy. And, and you and Robin both found every single one of those moments and made spun gold out of all of them. Oh, well, thank you. We had a really good time doing it. She's very amusing, and it was very yin and yang. We knew who the straight man was, and we knew who the funny man was, and it could switch at any given moment. But, you know, usually it was me trying to rein her in somehow. So I, you know, that's how it kind of went. You know, my favorite moment in that storyline, it was the opening day of the trial, I think, and, and uh, uh, Nora goes to the jail to collect Dorian, and I guess off screen, you had picked out a tasteful little unassuming pantsuit for Dorian to wear, and you walk in there, and there's Robin Strasser standing there in a glittery, shimmering gown, and, and uh, you know, dressed to the nines, and that incredible mane of hair just all teased up and, and made up, and, and, you know, the look on your face, you walk in there, and you said, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> and that's sort of what it, the relationship is all about. I mean, I oh. I looked at myself as the straight man to everyone else's shenanigans. I felt like Gene Wilder trying to make yes, sense yes, yes. out of everyone else's nonsense. <laughs> you know, it, it always kind of bugged me that subsequent One Life regimes sort of dropped the ball a bit on that relationship because, you know, uh, I know that Nora and Dorian crossed paths again several times over the years, and they even fought over a man for a while. And and you know, but those two, they really forged a rather odd friendship and and even kind of grudging respect for each other over the course of that trial storyline. And that point of connection between those two characters didn't always get honored correctly. I thought in subsequent years. No, we got very compartmentalized. Robin became Vicky's, and then they brought Lindsay on for me. So. Oh. You know, Robin and I kind of looked at each other across the room and wave and didn't really interact after that. You know, it was sort of like, okay, you you have to go back to your friend and I'll go play with my friend. And that's sort of the way we did it. We do have a little more interaction on One Life to Live reboot, but not as much as we had that year. That was a fun year. Oh, I love that year. Robin was the other one. She's so funny. The first year she came on, we were dressing roommates and the Emmys came up. She said, are you going to the Emmys? I said, no, no, I'm not going to the Emmys. You know, I, I shy away from publicity. I'm not, I'm not a publicity person. I like my privacy. I, my kids like their privacy, and my husband certainly likes his privacy. And I said, no, no. She goes, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> I said, oh, no, I don't. Then she goes, oh, yes, you are. You must be seen. You must be absolutely at the Emmys. And she's a big shopper. She loves bargain shopping. She goes, I just went shopping. And, you know, she was about two inches around, at the, and I was about two inches around, so we could change clothes back and forth, even though I'm about two feet taller than her. And she said, I've got the perfect outfit. It's very tasteful. It's not overdone. It's, I'm not a presenter. I'm not a recipient, but I'm here, and I'm elegant. I went, okay. And she brought out this beautiful blue satin suit with a diamond button. And she goes, and that's what you're going to wear. And this is what I'm going to wear. And I said, okay, perfect. And so... 
She said, uh, let's go. And I said, okay, but let's go this way, and then we don't have to do the red carpet. She goes, what do you mean we don't have to do the red carpet? <laughs> Darling, you're missing the point completely. And we got out of, she goes, come with me. Got out of the cab. She goes, no one's going to see us in a cab. We got out of the cab, and we walked down the road. And she said, ready? And took me right down the red carpet, stopping or taking pictures and whatnot. I couldn't wait to get, I was dying, dying, dying. And it was funny. We get to the end of the red carpet and walk in, and she goes, and that, darling, is how it's done. That's yeah. funny. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> she said, you don't ever hide your face. You put it out there. This is your here for the show, and you're here for yourself, and they need to know who you are. I was like, well, I've been doing this for a long time. But she goes, exactly, and nobody knows who you are. Okay. You win. <laughs> and something tells me that she always wins her battles. She certainly did back in those days. <laughs> So are you enjoying this one life renaissance, as it were? Oh, that we call it the reboot. Yes. <laughs> I really am. I really am. It's a very tight-knit group. You know, like I said, we're kind of the fun gang. One Life to Live comes back into town, and everyone's like, hi, we missed you. Because we've just always been fun. You know, we're, as I said, the ugly red-headed stepchild that got sent out to foster care. So we just found a new foster home, and we're coming to play with each other. And we just have fun. We have no illusions of anything other than, hey, Look, it's a barn. Let's do a play. <laughs> and that's what we're there for. We're hard workers, and uh, we're all about the team. We love Jen Pepperman as our exec. She's just so enthusiastic and kind and lovely, and Kathy is terrific. Jeff is there and rooting us on. I finally met Rich. He goes in and out quite a bit. He's holding down the fort in L.A. And his lovely wife, Leslie, who was I had a great time with when I shot my Moore show. And we got most of our crew back, and by the end of, you know, the time we left, we knew pretty much the rest of the crew, and it was fun. We've just been a family. Kid that they've got playing Matthew now, Rob Gorey, this is a ringer. I mean, this guy is amazing. He's fantastic. I mean, I, I mean, love You know, Eddie to take nothing away from Eddie, Eddie was brilliant, but this, this kid yeah. is good. Oh, he's really, really good. I mean, we, from the first day I worked with him, I just, it clicked. He knew exactly what I needed and what I wanted and the relationship. I said, here's the deal. We love each other. It's always been you and I against the world. You bet. You know, Bo came in later. You had several men come through here, but it's always been you and I. And he was like, I got it. So that first scene that we had together, that we, the first scene that we taped together was actually the coffee shop where I came in to apologize. And he was looking for a new apartment. And that was the first scene. And it was a wonderful way to set up Robbie's and my relationship. Sure. And I just knew then that, oh, I just love this guy. And I love Corbin. You know, what a, what a, I mean, you know, when, when that news first broke, it was like, okay, I don't know about this, but what a natural presence. I mean, he is just so funny and so charming and so real. You totally buy their friendship and you totally buy him, uh, you know, being this world-class I mean, you just totally buy it. Yes. Terrific. Absolutely terrific. And I think the Destiny recast is wonderful. I just, I, I love our kids. And Kelly Mitchell is just knocking out of the park. She's so good. And she's always been so respectful. You know, she said, I, I feel badly. I work so much, and this is really not my show. It's your show. I went, oh, no, 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 no. This is your show, honey. You are the young. You are who it is. We're just here as anchors. We're just here to let everybody know it's still one life to live, and you come to us and use us and everything else. But really, you're the... It's shifted. It's generational, and you great and take it. Be gracious and go with it. Make sure you take us to good places. 
you know, when, when Hillary left as World Jones in 1990, she threw herself pretty hard into the idea of chasing success as a comedic actress in primetime television. And to that end, she wound up starring in a number of high-profile pilots that ended up not going to series. And in 1992, she went down to the wire for the starring role in what was destined to be the hottest television property of that season. When the great writer-producer Diane English walked away from Murphy Brown, which at that time, with its potent mix of politics and comedic panache, uh, was the most buzzed-about show on television, to create a new series, CBS essentially gave English carte blanche to make whatever she wanted to make for them. And what she came up with was a new spin, a new comedic spin on the old Battle of the Sexes uh, theme called Love and War. Jay Thomas was the male lead, and Hillary thought she had the female lead in the bag, until an actress with a name, that name being Susan Day, who had just walked away from L.A. Law, the smash series that had completely reignited her television career, entered the mix and snagged the part, thanks to uh, you know, what were apparently some shady backroom dealings. Hillary's frustration at not getting that role and at a couple of other pilots eventually not progressing to series played a large part in making One Life to Live's contract offer exceedingly appealing to her. And, you know, while it's difficult and rather foolish, I think, to look back and not think that everything worked out exactly the way it was supposed to. I mean, let's face it, if Hillary had nabbed the love and roll part, the, I'm sorry, the love and war part, that she thought it was rightfully hers, a generation of us would have been robbed entirely of two decades of Nora Hannon, Gannon, Buchanan in our lives. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a thought I can't even begin to wrap my adult brain around. But, uh, you know, still it bears noting that after all the toil and trouble, Susan Day was an uneasy fit on Love and War from the very start. And though the show was an instant hit thanks to English's name and an extremely beneficial time slot, the one right after Murphy Brown, in the immediate wake of the Dan Quayle controversy on Monday nights, uh, Day only lasted one season on that show to be replaced by Designing Women's Annie Potts for the remainder of its run. You know, I had never heard or read Hillary speak of her thoughts on Love and War's eventual fate, but given the way it all shook out, I had been dying to hear how she really felt about how the choices she made and the, the choices that others made about her uh, had led to where she is right now. I wasn't certain that I would actually have the nerve to broach the topic once I had her on the phone, but by the end of our conversation, it felt like an absolutely appropriate button to put on all that we had talked about previously. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I couldn't wait to hear her answer. Yeah, you know, I know that you worked with her very early on in, in her career, you know, but for circumstance, you could have been Sandra Bullock. I mean, your career could have had that kind of trajectory or, you know, even, even somebody like a Gene Smart who has, you know, developed into this fun, funky character actress and you know she goes on all these primetime shows and she just knocks everybody's socks off you know but for maybe a couple of breaks going your way instead of not your career could have been i mean you know not at all to say that what your path ended up being wasn't great because i can't even begin to fathom a world without Nora hannon gannon buchanan in it and nor do i want to but you know i know that you were chasing primetime and film success hard a couple of decades ago before you came back to daytime and and i wonder sometimes if you personally have any regrets about the way it all worked out for you Oh, I never have any regrets about the choices I make. I really don't. They're just paths. They're just choices. And I don't ever believe there's a wrong decision. I really don't. I believe you make a decision and you make it the right one by committing to it and going with it. And here's what I have. I have a 30-year marriage and two beautiful children that I never would have had had I been as committed to my career the way Sandra and Jean were committed to theirs. Sure. And, you know, I would have had to go to Los Angeles, which was where I was going. I had a nice little career going. And the yeah, man exactly. that I, I mean, you were, loved, you were doing, you were living that life. 
Oh, yeah. I was living that life, and I was getting ready to move to California when my husband asked me to marry him. And I literally had to sit and think, do I want to stop this dream that I've always wanted and get married? Ooh. But do I want to live my life without this man who's been my dream? So I think I've had a more successful life because I have been able to do both, and that makes me a really rich person. I think I'm one of the most successful people out there because I've gotten to do Broadway, films, primetime, work with incredible people, daytime, which I loved, and I married the man that I always wanted to marry, and I have two fantastic kids. I'm looking, thinking, what am I supposed to regret here? There is not one thing I could think of to regret in my life. You know, do you ever allow yourself to go back to 1992 in your mind, to that love and war skirmish that came down to you and Susan Day, and, and do you ever just let yourself wonder what if? Well, you know, it's so funny because I ran into Jay Thomas years later after I was on One Life, and uh, I actually got a call when they were thinking about replacing Susan Day, and I, uh, I remember going to Bob Woods and said, they're thinking of replacing Susan Day, and Bob looked at me and said, how much, do I, how much are they offering? I'll double it for you to stay here. <laughs> and I, I smiled and I said, well, they're not offering anything. It's just, you know, there was a call. That was that that was a very that was a very big eye opener to me. That whole that, that one hurt, didn't it? I mean, that one hurt a little bit, right? Yeah, that hurt because I passed on so many projects. You know, I, I was I was a hot commodity in L.A. at that time, and they put me on tape pretty early on in New York, and I immediately got the Diane English wants to meet you. And she wants to meet you immediately. So I was flying out there. I literally went right from the airport because she wanted to see me immediately. I remember sitting in my car upside down putting pantyhose on because I'd just come from the airport and I was changing in the back of the car. I found out later when I walked into her office that I was literally outside her window (laughs) doing this. I looked at it and went, well, that's embarrassing. I was just changing my clothes in the back of that car two seconds ago. Did any of you see that? <laughs> and that was a meeting with Jay Thomas. She wanted me to come and read with Jay and in person with her. And so I did. And, and did you know Jay at all? Um, no, no, I did not. I subsequently knew a really good friend of his, but I did not know Jay. So it was really, but I knew of him. Sure. So um, I read with him, and I remember it was a really good reading. It was a really good reading. And this wonderful director that I'd worked with turned to Diane because he was directing some of the uh, women on the couch, as I called it, uh, designing women. And he said, I don't know what you're even thinking about. Just hire her. So she called my agent, and she said, we want to put her on the first right of refusal. And my agent said, well, it's the very beginning of pilot season. I'm not taking her off the table unless you want to make a commitment. You want to make an offer, make an offer, but I'm not taking her off the table. So I got other offers, and we called Diane English, and Diane English said, I really I can't make you an offer because we're waiting for the director to come back. The director wanted to work with me. She said, all I can say is I really – and I knew Susan Day was in the mix at this point. Of course. And – all I said was, I wanted to make sure that anyone who was being considered went to screen test because I knew 
I could blow Susan Day out of the water. <laughs> this script was mine. I knew that sure. show was mine. It was mine. And she promised But she was coming off that, of L.A. Law, and she had the name, and she was, you know. But it didn't matter. You know, Diane English felt that she turned Murphy Brown into a comedic success. And so she felt that she could make anyone and make them funny. And it wasn't that Susan Day wasn't funny, but it's just, I got this script. This was mine. <laughs> and I just felt that if I got into a screen test with her in front of the network, you were going to win. A no-brainer. Yeah. I was going to win. So she, I made them promise that we were going to screen test. She had a screen test. And so they did, and we did a deal memo. And I knew that they couldn't come to terms with her. And I thought, well, I got her there, too, because I'm cheaper than she is. <laughs> and we ended up going to the screen test, and we did it. And I didn't hear and didn't hear. And then I heard Terry Gar was in the mix, and I heard they were going back to Susan Day. And I went, what? And it was the wow. end of pilot season, and I passed on all these other projects. Yep. I was so angry. I was so upset. But my agent called and said, there are two projects that want you really badly. And I said, I'm going home. <laughs> I'm at it. I'm going home. And they were like, just take these scripts on the plane with you and read them. And so one of them was Driving Miss Daisy. And then another one was, gosh, I can't remember. Uh, he did Max Headroom. I can't remember the actor's name. Fur, Matt Fur. And I really liked it. And then it was Driving Miss Daisy. And then there was another one called Dirty Laundry. And I went and read for the Matt Frewer one, and they were like, we want you. And I went and read for the Driving Miss Daisy, and they were like, we want you. So I had to fly back out to L.A. <laughs> and I negotiated, and Driving Miss Daisy was, you know, how could I turn that down? It was the Xanax. It was Teresa Merritt. It was Joan Plowright, Robert Guillaume. And it was just, you know, it was awesome. And it was everybody who was originally involved in the project was doing the project. Wow. So it was like, how do you turn that down? You sure. don't. And it was all these Tony and Emmy and award winners that were working there. You know, Will McKenzie was directing it. I just, oh, my God. I was like, I'm sorry. I got to go with this. <laughs> I got to go with this. So I did that. I, I remember going to the screen test and shaking hands with everybody in the screen test. And then I came to Will McKenzie and I went, oh, my friend Lindsay worked with you, and she speaks so highly of you. And then I went through. And after the screen test, I got the part. And Lindsay told me at one point she got a call from Will McKenzie going, okay, what's wrong with her? Is she on drugs? What's wrong with her? <laughs> she seems really normal and very nice. There's got to be something wrong with her. <laughs> anyway, so I did that. But when I went in to read at CBS with the Driving Miss Daisy, I said, I don't understand. Why are you still throwing projects at me when, <laughs> when you turned me down for Love and War? And they said, we didn't. We gave you thumbs up. We wanted you. Mm. Diane decided that she wanted Susan Day. And so I went, well, okay. And Susan Day did not screen test. Oh. I was the only one at the screen test. So as far as I was concerned, I had it. It was mine. And she said to me, everybody has the screen test. And I said that to Jay at Thomas. I said, where's Susan Day? And he goes, they didn't make a deal. And she's not here to screen test, so guess what? It was a hmm. bummer. That show would still be on the air if I was on it. <laughs> That's just me talking. <laughs> 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 
No, it was a great script. It was one of the smartest scripts I'd ever read. I really loved it. I thought Diane English had just written a beautiful, fabulously funny script. It was spectacular. It was the best pilot I'd ever read. Well, and a perfect showcase for Jay Thomas. I mean, if they could have just found the right woman to act opposite him, I mean, it would have been a slam dunk, I think. Well, it was so funny because years later, as I said, I I ended up doing a radio show with him, and he introduced me as the woman that got away from (laughs) Diane English and him. And it was he goes, I swear to God, we'd still be on the air if you'd gotten that job. I said, you wanted the blonde. (laughs) I could have dyed my hair, but you fell for the blonde. Perfect. Yeah. You know, there's one more thing I want to ask. I'm going to take away from Susan Day because she's beautiful. Absolutely. No question about it. And, and, you know, uh, a perfectly fine actress, but even she would admit a very uneasy fit in that that kind of comedic realm, especially that that – that, uh, you know, whip-smart kind of Diane English brand of comedy. And in single camera, she's awesome, because L.A. Law, my God, spectacular. Absolutely. And I loved her in the Partridge Family. I was a Partridge Family fan. <laughs> Got to tell you. You know, there's one more thing I'm gonna ask, I want to ask you about, and then I'm going to stop bending your ear. I know I've already monopolized so much of your time, but but uh, several years ago I had your old buddy Scotty Bryce in here, and, and – uh, you know, any time that over the course of 90-some-odd episodes that I've had anybody in here who has any connection with you at all, I always ask them about it. And uh, I asked him about how much fun you guys had basically bankrupting the $25,000 pyramid. And here's what he said. Oh, the storyline is that Hillary and I, we were in makeup office together because our scenes would be right after the first. And so we'd sit in the makeup chair, and we'd turn the volume off. And we obsessively played the game. And finally, one of the producers walked by and said, well, why don't you guys just be celebrity guests on it? And we thought, well, that's a good idea. So we told them that we were interested, and they sent us, like, a little test. And they said, well, come in and do a little test. They were being very condescending. <laughs> and we blew the doors in. They thought, oh, my gosh, actors who can read. <laughs> so uh, we, we were then on the show, and we had a wonderful time. And it was a wonderful show. We raised a lot of money, both for the... Uh, Native American College Fund, and for the Boys Club of Greater New York. And we raised something like $85,000 in four days. Had an amazing time. It was really fun. Okay, now I want to hear your side of the story. <laughs> well, I love his $85,000, but let me tell you, he shouldn't put that out there because the IRS will come looking for that other $35,000, $40,000. It was $45,500 that we won. Wow. But we went to the pyramid every single time that we were <laughs> And we won it like two or three times. I mean, you the guys best were amazing. clue was I was better at giving the clues and he was better at guessing. And we had one where even Dick Clark came out and went, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> the clue was Conestoga wagons. And he said, things a pioneer uses. Wow. And it was right. <laughs> <laughs> Things the pioneer uses. Ding ding ding. <laughs> we had the game on the plane, and we were playing it together on the plane. So we had hit every word I think that it was in the Webster's dictionary, and we almost had a shorthand for everything. We had accordion, and I gave him Honda, and he went accordion. <laughs> and the Clark was staring at us, going, "How in the world did you come up?" A musical <laughs> instrument from a car. <laughs> Honda. And I just moved my hands in and out. Honda. Accordion. Thank you. Moving on. Oh, God, it was so funny. And Patsy Pease and Terry Lester were on. And Terry Lester is getting so frustrated because he's very competitive. 
Yes. And he couldn't, he couldn't get Patsy to say anything right. And we <laughs> were trying to get her to say minister, and she kept saying priest, leader, something like that. And at the very end, he goes, how did you not get it? Your father's a minister. for <laughs> But oh my God, Scott and I laughed our butts off. We just laughed our butts off the whole time. We went back to the hotel and just looked at each other. And, oh my, we just started laughing. We were just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, $40,500. It's so funny, though. I love how he said that they were being very condescending to you guys. Like, oh, it's so nice that you want to come and be on our show. Oh, we had, it was, I think it was a begging job. We begged to go on the show. And I, you know what? I had subsequently begged to go back on that show when it was doing a celebrity thing, and nothing, nothing. I kept saying, who else has won $40,500? Bring me on. I'll do it. For God's sake. We also did Family Feud together. That was hysterical. Oh, wow. It was Scott Holmes was brand new on the show. It was Scott Holmes and Scott Rice and me and... I think Helen Wagner was there, and I can't remember who else, but oh my God, we were laughing hysterically. And we were playing against Young and the Restless, and it was Doug Davidson, Jeannie Cooper, Tracy Bregman, um, Trisha Cast. Who else was on that panel? Maybe Beth Maitland, I'm not sure. Wow. I can't remember. Anyway, so we go. <laughs> you know how they have the beginning of the show, and the curtain opens, and the family's in this pose? Yes. Well, you know, by the fifth day, you've got to come up with a pose. Doug Davidson got a little wild. <laughs> he had, there's a couch and a table, and you're supposed to place yourself however you want to for the yeah. family photo. And he had taken the table and turned it upside down, so the legs were sticking up, and it was headed down the stairs, <laughs> the long legs. And they were all sitting on it like it was a sled they were going down the hill with. And the doors opened, and that was what was holding the table in place. And the doors opened, the table goes sliding down, and Gene Cooper goes butt over tea kettle, dress up over. I mean, it's what we were in. <laughs> Everyone was flying all over the place. Doug Davis. Laughing so hard, Ted Davidson couldn't even speak. He was laughing so hard. Jeannie <laughs> with her dress on for a long time. Oh my God! What the hell are you talking about? Oh God, it was very amusing. <laughs> yeah, we had a good time. After all, turns with my. I mean, I must say, I laughed so hard doing it between Scott Holmes, Scott Bryce, and Benjamin Hendrickson. Oh, I peed my pants more times than I can. We really had a good time. So you just can't know how grateful I am that you actually made it to the end of this madness, and you can't know how much I appreciate the utterly enchanting Hillary B. Smith for willingly subjecting herself to my endless grilling for far longer than any human should ever have to endure. Hillary, you are the absolute best. The absolute brilliant best, my lady, and I will never be able to thank you enough for this. To say I'll treasure this forever, this conversation forever, is an understatement. Quickly, I also want to give a shout-out to the magnificent Susie Betzel Horgan, 
also incidentally an Emmy winner 20 years ago for her work as a member of One Life's writing team. Uh, she helped me set this entire project in motion. Hillary's the best, there's no question, but there can be two bests if you ask me, and you are the other one, Susie. I absolutely adore you, and I treasure your friendship infinitely. Uh, as for me, that's at long last a wrap, my little chickadees. Brandon's buzz in the can, finally. If you're listening, then you already know how to find the show, but in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. From there, you, that really is home base for this show. You can see everything that's been on the show, everything that is on the show, everything that's coming to the show uh, is all right there in one package. You can send emails. You can leave comments. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com, all one word, slash Brandon's Buzz. <coughs> you can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. You click that. That takes you to a full archive. Every episode of this show, this is episode number 97, this and all previous 96, all available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. You can also find me on iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Find my puzzle piece colorful logo. Click on that. That takes you to every episode of the show, and you can either subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they show up in the store, or you can pick and choose and, and add, you know, download individual old episodes, individual past episodes as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing. They're in MP3 format, so you can play them on pretty much any device that you have, and uh, you know, it's a great way to catch up with what's happening on Brandon's Buzz and uh, what you've missed in the past five and a half years. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm on, I'm on uh, iTunes, I'm on Google, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and seriously, something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, guys, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you finding me and listening to me, and I hope to hell you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy, great show. Check it hey out. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Better when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs> 